Uh, kind of a daunting task this morning to get through the whole chapter, um, but I think the Lord will help us do it. And uh, really looking forward to this section here on, on Israel and the gospel. So, Ethan, why don't you come and read, please? So, please join me by turning to Romans chapter 10 as we read down through this together. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not established themselves into the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and in thine heart, that is, the word of faith, which we preach, that if we confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Um, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and the words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not for me. But to Israel, he saith, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Bless Fred. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... This morning you've given to us and to the mind of the mercies that do every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to um, Israel and your faithfulness to the Gentiles. Father, thank you that we are able as Gentiles to be brought into the family of God. And Father, that, you, um, that it is by faith that we stand and before you and not by our own works and the things that we are able to do, but based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us that we are able to stand in confidence today. Father, thank you that the gospel is going throughout the whole world. Thank you, Father, for as we know today that 
of the churches that are around the world. Father, thank you that you are raising up other people, too, to go into the areas that are still are unreached. And I pray that your word will go forth, that you will raise up laborers to go into all of the world, to, to every people group, into every language. And Father, help us to be diligent in that task of, of sending and training um, people to be able to go out. And may we be diligent in our area and reaching the people around us. Father, thank you, Father, for the things that Pastor Jamie shared this morning of some of, of the things that are going on behind the scenes of people reaching out to their, their community. Father, I pray that you will continue to open doors for us to reach into the lives of the people around us. And so that we be able to display the gospel to a lost and dying world. And may we be diligent in helping each other grow in our own faith and making disciples. Father, I pray for Pastor Jamie to have wisdom today as he speaks. Help him to have clarity of mind and to be able to accurately proclaim the word of God. Help us to have ears to hear, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of it. And may it transform our lives. Thank you for all that you're doing in and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Ethan. So we're in, in Romans chapter 10, and um, Jesus told a story one time about a certain man who was having a big dinner party, and he invited a lot of guests, and then the day of the, 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 the feast, the party arrived, and he sent one of his servants who had been, uh, 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 who had been with him to invite those um, who wanted to come, and the servant said, come on, everything's ready now, and he goes out in the neighborhood and he invites all the people. But they all had the same idea. They began to make some excuses. And the first one said, I just bought a, a new piece of property. I've got to go and see it. So, excuse me, I won't be able to make it. Another one said, uh, I just bought five pair of oxen. I'm on, I'm on my way to try them out. So, excuse me. Another guy said, I just got married. So I can't come. And so the servant goes back and reports back to his master the responses. And the owner of the house gets really angry, the master, and he orders his servants, and he says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in those who are poor and those who can't walk and the blind and the, and the disabled. And the servant says, sir, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And so the master told the servant, go out to the roads, go out to the country lanes, make the people come in. I want my house to be, to be full. He says, um, uh, but I'm gonna, I want you to know this. Everyone who I invited who said no here um, will not get a taste of the, of the feast. The parable is from Luke, and it's what our passage in Romans 10 is actually dealing with uh, today. It seems like in the book of Romans, the gospel come to Rome, perhaps through some of the Jews at Jerusalem and, and Pentecost in Acts 2. But then later, history records this, and it's also in the book of Acts a little bit later, the Roman emperor Claudius had forced all Jews out of Rome. And those churches became more and more non-Jewish. And then that ban was lifted, and the Jewish believers returned, and they said, Hey, what happened to my church? These guys aren't following my traditions and culture. Don't you know what God's word says? You need to follow Moses' law and the way you live. You're not very holy like we are. And so it seems in chapter excuse me, 12 through 16, there's believing Jews and Gentiles in these house churches in Rome. And they're facing strife between each other. Jews are claiming their heritage as Israelites to claim a, a, a cultural superiority over the Gentile believers. 
And Gentile believers are just rolling their eyes at the Jewish brothers and sisters. And Paul knows that both of those arrogant attitudes are going to destroy the church. And they're going to decay their mission. And he knew God had a job for them to join in and partner with him on a journey to Spain to plant more churches. You can read about this in chapter 15. But they needed to be a strong base of what God intended instead of fracturing into all these different cultural battles. And so at this point in the letter, he wants to explain, after he has explained very explicitly and clearly what the gospel is, he wants to explain what the surprising turn of the tables is with Israel and the Gentiles. To bring a, a common understanding, a welcoming of the new Gentiles, and also to show them that God is not done with the Jewish people, as is even proved with this remnant who's already a part of the church at Rome. And so in chapter 9 last week, that, that chapter that sometimes can be so debated, we saw Paul's heart for his Jewish people, that they would, they would come to Jesus, their Messiah, and he even says he would switch places with them if it meant they would be saved. Israel had the covenant blessings, including the very Redeemer of the world, come to them and through them, and they were turning away from it. And God was moving the spotlight to the Gentiles. And Paul shows that this surprising move of God is right in step with God's character. Because God had already done this with the choosing of Israel centuries ago. That were players in the promised plan that God made through Abraham to bring a blessing to the descendants of Israel to all the nations. He chose the younger brother. He, he didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac. He didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob, etc. And worked his plan through this. So that the Gentiles could receive the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. There is an unexpected way he had done this through Israel that had defied human conventions. And so there is an unexpected way that he would turn the tables and throwing open the door of mercy to the Gentiles. Which was the result that he said would happen from the beginning. That Israel would be a blessing to all the families of the earth in the first place. And so that's kind of a, a quick summary of chapter 9 that we looked at the last two weeks. And so now we're in chapter 10, probably one of the better known chapters in Romans 9 through 11. Here, and he's going to show that the door of mercy that Israel has access to, the opportunity they have that everyone has, Jew or Gentile, through the same message, the same means, the announcing of the good news, but sadly... In comparison, not exactly the same result. So we're going to be in chapter 9, verse 30, to, to catch up here, where Paul says this, What shall we say then that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, had attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness, Wherefore? Or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. What I want you to see this morning is that the righteousness of God, through the word of Christ, is near to you. 
It's near to you. Paul here understands that Jew and Gentile have both been invited to the life of God. You and I, invited into the very life of God to be saved from our sin and the coming judgment. But it requires a relationship that God has already provided through the perfect God and human, His Son. And access into this relationship is to not work harder for it, but to turn aside from yourself in your life without God and receive the person of the Son and all He is and provides. And all the rest of your days follow Him. And so Paul gives these verses in chapter 9, 30 to 33, and he picks up in 10 and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He says, I, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, a fervency for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish or secure their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end. He is the goal. He was everything the law had been pointing to for righteousness to everyone that believes. And what Paul is wanting us to see here is that new life only comes through only one. There's only one with this new life in God. Life in God and purity of the soul can't come from you. It comes in only one. And Paul takes a couple passages, one in Isaiah 8 and one in Isaiah chapter 28, to say that uh, 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 in fulfillment of Scripture, God isn't changing His plan. He's working out what He's already said. That there's been a foundation of God's new building that's been laid. And this foundation has never been through the law of God, but it's been through the one who has fulfilled the law of God, Jesus Christ. But for those who don't believe in this Messiah, the Messiah who's the foundation, they're going to trip over this stone and fall flat on their faces. And so he shows them these words in Isaiah chapter 28 to understand this. And what he's quoting from uh, here in Isaiah is that is that uh, in, in trying to make this point that Israel had a failure to believe in Jesus as Messiah. You see this in the Gospels, don't you? With Jesus' ministry. And what God is doing here, the Jew and Gentile, is not thwarting his plan. He's, God's not changing his mind. But rather, and it's, it's an unexpected, from our perspective, from the Jews' perspective, fulfillment of what God had planned all along. And so here we are with Paul. We need to take Paul's hand here and walk through this. He's, he's guiding us here. And this isn't, this isn't milk. Um, the, these chapters here are, are, are meat. All right? They're heavy here. And here's the journey here. He's, in chapter 9, we follow the story of Abraham and Israel. Okay? And now we're arrived at the point to where we can look back and look ahead here and see what's been going on. Gentiles have been coming into the covenant family that God promised Abraham. And a good many Jews have chosen to reject that. And God has been faithful to his covenant. This is what God had in mind all along, even though Israel hadn't understood this. Their mis misunderstanding was part of God's plan. But membership in God's new covenant here, in his new covenant family here, membership 
is marked out by faith alone, not the works of Moses' law. And that's why Gentiles are counted as God's family, because they have come, as Romans 3 and 4 have told us, through faith. And Paul's fellow Jews were doing their best, just as he had, to have a zeal. A zeal. They're using their law here as a badge of this idea that they were part of God's covenant membership. They were relying on their performance of the law's commands to demonstrate that they were the true, true children of Abraham. But the law wasn't meant to work that way. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I'm the fulfillment of the law, I'm what the law pointed to, you must trust in me, they tripped over that stone. The Messiah. They had a zeal. They were passionate. They were sincere. That they were sincerely wrong, just as Paul was before Christ. They're fanatical. Think about Paul. He's wanting to kill, exterminate believers in Messiah. That's how, that's how serious he is about this. Someone said that a fanatic is a person who, having lost sight of his goal, redoubles his effort to get there. And here they were, running around frantically, getting nowhere. Like a basketball player without a basket. Like a tennis player without a net. Like a golfer without a green to make progress in. They didn't have the clear idea of what the goal is. It's Jesus. And so they remain ignorant of God's purposes and the fact that God had been faithful to his promises. When he sent Jesus as the Messiah in verse 4. The Messiah is the goal, the end, the telos of the law. This is where God's purposes have been heading all along. Jesus, the perfect God-man who kept God's law perfectly and who it all points to. But Israel's stumbling block was their pride. And this is a real important point in Paul's letter here. If we get our head around it, we're going to be able to get our head around other things too. And Paul is showing how God's purposes have reached their climax in his, his very personal prayer that he had started at the, uh, in chapter 9, he's reiterating here in these verses, the longing of his heart and his prayer to God for his fellow Jewish people is that they would be saved. And he's going to build on this in chapter 11 as well. So new life only comes through the one. The one true Savior, Messiah. New life can't come through myself and my personal efforts. Or my connections to others and their success or personal efforts or relationship with God. It's only through Israel's Messiah, Jesus, who brings God's righteousness, God's offer of new life that comes through the obedient, crucified, risen, enthroned King. Only. That's the only way. And so in verses 5 through 13, he's going to show that how Jesus is the only way. Look what he says. For Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. Quoting Leviticus 18.5. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what says it? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. 
For the scripture says, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's what he's saying here. New life comes through committing to the one message. The one message. This is the one message. Paul shows from Leviticus 18 verse 5 that even from Moses' very words, you keeping the law was all or nothing. It wasn't as though, you know, you could keep 99.99% of Moses' law and be good. It was all Moses' law or nothing. And there's the problem, right? Therein lies the problem. No one has kept God's perfect law. We've fallen short of the glory of God. But God has provided the one who has. And the one who has died for the ones who have not. Right? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so Paul's replaying this tune here that they knew, but he's showing how it points to Jesus as the finisher of the law of Moses. And the tune he's going to work with after Leviticus is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's an amazing passage, Deuteronomy 30. It's full of promise and life. The Jews had studied that passage carefully. They wanted to find out what God was going to do after all the years he had suffered at the hands of pagan nations. And here's the context. This is important to understand here. And again, this isn't um, uh, milk here. This is, this is some, some weighty stuff here. But track with me. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and 30 come near the end of Moses' long message, his long charge to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. And these chapters are, are telling the story of what's going to happen in Israel's future, in the days to come. If Israel keeps God's promises, there's blessing. If they don't, he warns of curses to come. And what's more, Moses predicts that Israel will disobey and reap the reward of those curses, just like God said. And one of the worst of those curses is that they're going to be driven out of the promised land. And they're going to be sent off into exile. And that's what chapter 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy is about. But then, Deuteronomy 30, there's a fresh word. There's a further promise to which God commits himself to Israel. That's a covenant. When Israel has gone into exile because they disobeyed, and they got the curses just like God said, they might think, well, we're finished, we're done. But God promises if they turn back to him, even when they're, gonna, even when they're in exile, He's going to rescue them. And even more specifically, he's going to tell them, I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of what's wrong. What's wrong isn't your outside. What's wrong is the inside. I'm going to transform your heart. I'm going to change your heart so you can keep my law the way I intended. And it's not a matter of people like at the end of Deuteronomy or, or, or Romans 9, of people trying to climb up the ladder to heaven. They won't even have to go across the sea to find it. It's going to come and find them. It's going to be in their heart. The exile will be over, the curse will be undone, Israel will be under a new covenant, and Israel will be saved. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is about. Well, what will that look like when it happens? How will Israel, who's oppressed and exiled by foreign nations, know what to do, know how to receive this new covenant? Well, <clears throat> Israel at this time, well, Paul's writing is under Roman oppression, right? They're still under the curses of Deuteronomy 29. 
separated from God, a relationship ruled by four nations, God has now provided the way for Israel to return, to be transformed, to be saved. And the way consists here of God giving Israel a fresh gift of grace. What the writer of Hebrews calls a new and living way. And those who embrace this new way will be God's saved people. And this new and living way is a person. Paul's talking about Jesus himself. You don't have to go up to heaven because Messiah already came down to you. And so new life comes through committing to the one message. You don't have to go into the deep, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14, because Messiah has already been raised from the dead. The undoing of this exile has come true in Jesus. He's God's fresh gift of grace in a new covenant here. God unveiled his salvation. It's the one way for all people. God brought it near to them in a new way. And how does this get applied? By all who openly acknowledge Jesus Lord and believe in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead. That is the sign that someone is in Christ in a new family. Not circumcision, not the old ways of the law. Those are the ones who God saves. And so Deuteronomy talks about God's word, a, a fresh act of God's saving grace, the life of Jesus coming to be in your mouth and in your heart. And that life found in Jesus, those who receive that find that their lives are transformed. They're turned inside out in the way that Deuteronomy and Paul himself, all the way back in chapter 2, the circumcision of the heart, had described. And this transformed heart, seen in a, in a, in a, in a public declaration of, of, of allegiance to Jesus as, as, as their Lord and the belief that God had raised him from the dead, that's a sign that someone was now a, a, a new kind of human. The people that were promised by God in Deuteronomy 30 say, wow, that's amazing that God did that for the Jewish people, but here's the amazing part. It's open to all. And so Paul has insisted over and over throughout this letter uh, that, that one of the points of the gospel is that non-Jews are welcomed into this, into this family here on the same equal terms through faith. And if the Jews wanted the salvation that was provided in their own Jewish Messiah, they must, as Paul had to learn, Understand that God shared this Messiah with the world, with a larger company. And it's through this one message, this one message. Look at it again. Verse 8. But what says it? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. Mouth and heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For the heart man believes the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Here's his point. Confess your mouth the Lord Jesus. The idea is confessing Jesus as master. In Paul's world, Lord was a title for Caesar, wasn't it? Caesar was Lord, was the Roman slogan. The emperor, the king, were someone to say Jesus is the one true God. 
means that Caesar isn't, right? Jesus has claimed because he has proved this through his crucified and risen life. And then Paul will quote in 11, the Old Testament again, the gospel according to the scriptures, right? For the scripture says, whosoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. He's going to quote from uh, Isaiah uh, 28 or 49, depends on where you think he's quoting from here. And he's going to say that this brings glory. Receiving this message brings glory. We've fallen short of God's glory, but it brings glory now to receive this message so you're restored to glory. And then he's going to say there is no difference in verse 12 between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. The early Christians had this slogan that they would share over and over, and it was this. Jesus is Lord. I give him my life to him. He's given his life to me. He's my master, my king. Caesar isn't. Rome can throw whatever they want at you, at, at me. But Jesus is the one who I'm following. And now Paul will say, this isn't anything new that this is available to all. Joel talks about this in Joel chapter 2. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Jew and Gentile. And when Paul is quoting from the prophet Joel in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord there is referring to the Old Testament Yahweh, Israel's God. And what Paul's saying is Jesus is that eternal Yahweh. So Paul's clear that Jesus the Messiah, who died and he rose again, was the personal embodiment of Israel's God in the flesh, coming at last to do what he'd always promised in purity, dying for rebellion and rising from the dead. And in and through him, he, re he reverses the disaster of Israel's failure. The name of Israel's God has been glorified again among the nations of the world. This is the one saving message. This is to quote Romans 1.16. The saving power of the gospel that makes one righteous with God. Gives new life in Christ. No hope without it. And the invite is to all. And the obvious application this morning is, have you turned your life over to the one message of the one person? We declared that. In your public confession, your baptism. There is no other way. Jesus, the one message and the one person. And believers among us this morning. Are you still believing? Are you still loyal? Above all else. Are you walking in that grace and that new life and calling? Will you be faithful to the end? He's not done. Get to the last section here. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. They have not all obeyed the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? What he's saying in verses 14 and 15 is that new life here comes through ones who believe, transmitting the message to others. This is how it comes. And it begins with this chain, right, of, of, of logic here to show that him, the fellow apostles, others who join in this task and going to the Gentiles and the Jews with the good news of Jesus, they weren't being disloyal to Israel. They were fulfilling what God had always said. Because when it all comes down to it, the message must be transmitted. And for those to believe, and whosoever to believe, that message must be received with understanding and embrace. It's only through the life-giving message that a commitment comes when the message is understood and then embraced. And he quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 7. He's saying this message must be heard. It must be received. It must be heard and received. In Isaiah 52, 7. You know what the next chapter is, right? Isaiah 52 is part of the build-up to that famous 53 chapter, suffering of the Messiah, prophecy of Jesus. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of the people who bring the good news, the gospel. And the point is this, in Isaiah, that that news is so good that those who receive it, embrace it, are like people who want to kiss the person delivering the mail to them for bringing a wonderful message. Now think about the best thing you ever received in your mailbox. Maybe it was a debt that was forgiven. Maybe it was the news of engagement. Maybe if you remember back far enough, it was a love letter. Think about that. And you're so excited to receive that letter, right? Imagine someone overjoyed with good news. And kids, let me put it on your level. When the Amazon UPS truck comes and you get what you ordered, right? Of course, it's not only kids, is it? You're, even, you're looking at that brown truck pulling into your drive, driveway and you're thinking that the wheels on those UPS are special because they brought me this package. Right? That's a small picture, isn't it? Of how Isaiah prophesied that people would feel about these heralds as they ran to announce the good news of God's salvation. Behold your God! And Paul had seen this again and again as he had gone around the Gentile world, certainly seen rejection, but there were those who were coming to Jesus, telling people, Jesus is Israel's Lord. God has raised him from the dead, and this gospel message has struck home the hearts and lives, and it's brought healing, it's brought salvation and transformation. The message is the saving power of God. Don't doubt it. Don't bury it. Don't stop believing it. Don't stop transmitting it. Don't stop living your life in line with it. It's good news of the saving power of God to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But you see, Paul faces a problem. Not everybody received it like scent of roses, right? Some of it was the scent of death. Even in the Gentile world, plenty of people have heard this message and haven't believed it. Does that mean that he's making a mistake? And Paul says, no. That's also part of the, according to the scriptures, prophecy. That's part of the script here. Because, listen, the message of Jesus, the Messiah, new life in him, must be individually believed. There's a responsibility. 
There's a responsibility to believe it. And that's the point he's making in verses 16 through 21. Imagine this. <clears throat> you got your stimulus. And you're going to do some remodeling in your house. And you made the plans and the choices for what you want it to look like. And the contractor who you're going to contract with, he comes and he starts changing the design and changing the different cosmetic touches. And you go in and you're like, what in the world is going on? This is the agreement. Why are you going off script? Why are you changing what we agreed on? And you take out what you had agreed on, that contract and the plans there, and you go back to the original plans and your intentions, and you said, this is what we talked about here. And that's what Paul's doing in this passage. The problem he's facing is that Israel's behaved like that renegade contractor, rogue contractor. They're trying to design God's people and God's plan the way they wanted instead of the way God wanted. And so Paul's faced with a task. He has to, he has to first of all explain what God's original plan had been. He's done that, chapter 10, 1 through 13, or uh, 16 here. And he has to now explain that even Israel's failure to believe was foreseen in prophecy in Israel's scriptures themselves. And so he wants to make it clear that this, this design that the owner had for the house, Gentiles flooding into God's new covenant here. Many Israelites deliberately staying out have been in the blueprint all along. And so he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1, where the prophet's describing the suffering servant Messiah himself. He says, Lord, who's believed what we were talking about? Who's believed it? Paul is saying, could it be that though that the Gentile nations just haven't simply heard it? Is that why so many of them as yet haven't believed? And Paul says, no, that's not it. Because look, Psalm 19, remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. He quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4. A passage that God's hidden but powerful message has been going out throughout all creation. A message like we read in 1, 18-20 of Romans 1. That all humans have heard, but they haven't heeded. That it's directed them to more revelation, but they haven't heeded it. They've suppressed that truth. And so Paul's, we're not, I'm not exactly sure what he's saying. Some have suggested that it's maybe what he's saying. and Like what he says in Colossians 1, 23, that with the resurrection of Jesus... That historical event in the history of this world, a silent but powerful message like an earthquake ripped through the whole created order. The message that sin and death had been defeated and the resurrected Christ as the first fruits of new creation had been launched upon the world. Like a gunshot echoing back and forth around the mountains. Like a crack in the windshield that spreads throughout the rest of it. Perhaps that's what he's saying. We're not sure. But he's saying, God has given sufficient revelation, regardless. And clearly, God, Paul believed that this gospel message concerning Jesus was the fulfillment of the Creator's plan for his creation all along. He's involved with it. And the Gentile world knows of the Creator. And if it knows the Creator, then at least in principle, they know of a rescue plan for creation because they can see that things aren't right with the creation. But why is it that Israel hasn't believed the gospel? That's the second part of this problem, right? 
So we quote Isaiah, he's quoted the Psalms, and now he's going to go back to that third division of the Old Testament, the law. And Deuteronomy in particular. Did Israel know that God was going to do such a thing? That he was going to reveal his salvation to pagan nations? Remember the Romans won pagan nations? The nations from whose rule Israel longed to be free from? Well, Israel itself was in unbelief, and it says, actually, yes, Israel did know this, exactly this. And he's going to say that God is going to make Israel jealous. And he's going to say in verse 19, did Israel know? And he says, yeah, Israel know. That God would use another nation, Gentile nations, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Quotes from Deuteronomy 32. That God has made his promise of salvation to Israel. <clears throat> and Israel had kind of taken that and said, yeah, that's us. No one else. But God wanted Israel to know. And Paul stresses this over and over again. That this promise that God made to Israel for, was for all the nations to be blessed. The promises were intended to work through Israel. For the benefit of the rest of the world. That's the part they were missing. That God had saved them and made this covenant with them to do something for the rest of the world. They were blessed to be a blessing. So what's what's going to happen when God acts through Messiah to fulfill his intention here? Even though Israel clings to their selfishness. And like the older brother in the prodigal son, they stay away from the party. And the answer is... Israel will be jealous because Gentiles will be inheriting the spiritual promises that God made to Israel. And there, Israel is missing out on those things. The Gentiles were a non-people in terms of the covenant. They're foolish because they lack the wisdom that God made available to Israel in the law and the revelation. But God is going to call those people precisely to arouse Israel to jealousy and anger. And in Romans 11, you're going to find out why, even though that sounds like bad news, it's good news. It's good news. And so then, he, he anchors his point in the law, and then he goes back to Isaiah to ram home the point. And he quotes two verses from Isaiah chapter 65. And when we get there, we realize, ah, we're all the way back where we started in chapter 9, verse 30. What's happened is, through the preaching of the gospel, two things. Those who weren't even looking for salvation from Israel's Messiah stumbled on it for good. If they were just walking around in life, the Gentiles, and boom! The gospel, they received the gospel. And those who should have been looking for it were missing out. Think about the Gentiles. The Roman Empire and Gentiles had not been sitting around asking, boy, when's this good news from Israel's Messiah going to come to us? The gospel burst on them, unaware. It's like, it's like somebody announcing the end of a long and bitter war to somebody who's never even heard there's a war going on. And that power, the message of the gospel itself, would have been the link between salvation that fulfilled God's promises to Israel and now bringing in Gentile people. 
So they're like the extra guests in Jesus' parable. They found themselves being invited to a banquet they didn't even know was being prepared. That's you and me. You and I. And then Israel, the original invited guests, had made their excuses. They had shambled off on their own business here. And how could this be? That all these unclean pagans are being allowed into the company of God without even getting circumcised to show that they were turning away from their wicked idolatry practices. That's what Paul had been thinking all along. That's why he went to Damascus. But now, God's opened his eyes and he sees this as a fulfillment of one of God's stages here. Imagine being Israel, the chosen people of God, and turning your back when he came calling and stretching out his arms to you to offer the same thing that you said you've been waiting for all along. That's what Israel was doing. The story doesn't stop there. And that's Romans chapter 11. But we should do well to ponder the strange path that God is right here. As believers. We couldn't have thought it. There's a warning in this passage too. Have you ever heard the phrase turn a blind eye? Means to ignore things that you don't want to hear. Came from a British naval battle in the 1800s. April 2nd, 1801. During the Battle of Copenhagen, British fleet was attacking the navies of Denmark and Norway. And three British ships ran aground, so the Admiral Hyde Parker decided that the fire of battle was too hot for the enemy to oppose, so he, he sent an order through signal flags that the younger Admiral Horatio Nelson should dis- discontinue action and withdraw from the battle. And so Horatio Nelson, the British young British Admiral, he heard this order, but he pretended not to hear the signalman who relayed it. And he's caught in the thrill of battle, mesmerized by it. And he had no intention of obeying this order to stop fighting. And he said, this day may be the last for us at any moment. And a Danish cannibal hit his ship's mast, and it scattered splinters all around him. And Nelson had already lost one of his eyes in the previous battle. And so they pressed him again to respond to Parker's order. And he told, Nelson told his flag captain, Thomas Foley, he said, you know, Foley, I have only one eye. I have the right to be blind sometimes. And so Nelson held up his telescope to his right eye, the one that was blind, and said, I really do not see the signal. And sometimes... We can be like Nelson with the Word of God, can't we? One good eye, one blind eye. And an order comes from God, and we hold up that telescope to the blind eye. And we ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. Here's a warning for us as believers to be tender to the Word of God. But there's also a warning to those who do not know Jesus, who God has opened the door of mercy to and has given you this one message that saves over and over and over again. You see, it's not that God has withheld His open door of mercy, is it, in this chapter. It's that man has turned his eyes away, as illustrated with Israel. C.S. Lewis probably overstated it, 
when he said hell is blocked from the inside. But I think his overall point is seen in Scripture. The message of Israel's Messiah must be individually believed. Each of us are responsible for our response to the good news, and we will be held accountable to it. The word is near you. Whatever word is proclaimed and taught, it is near you. And how will you respond? Where is the state of your heart? Believers who are here today, are you loyal to the saving power of God at work in your life? And it's commissioned to make disciples of the Messiah through you, through this good news and faithful obedience. Clinging to this message. Has the Holy Spirit put a spotlight on areas of your life? This message of the Lord Jesus, who's the enthroned saving king, needs to have transformation. Where is the Spirit holding out his hands to you, revealing himself to you, where you need him to continue to work? And lost one who might be here today. Might be hearing the word of Christ this morning. The day of his mercy and offering it to you to respond. Are drawing to a close. All day long he has held out his hands. His voice has gone out into all the world. The message has reached you. And he's calling you to respond. He's summoning you to turn to repentance and faith. Which means this. Turn to him as Lord and Redeemer. There is, there is no other hope. But this message is the saving power of God. To give you liberation from self and the judgment that will come soon. And escape the power of sin and death and the torments of hell forever. And so the invitation is always this. Will you come to him, the saving King Jesus? Turn to Jesus through salvation. Turn to him for rescue from your sin. Turn to him for new life. And upon receiving that good news of repentance and faith, tell the world about it. Declare that through baptism. Follow King Jesus. See, new life comes through only one, our Jesus. A new life comes through believing that message, committing to that one message. New life comes through believers transmitting that message to those who don't believe yet. But this message of new life in Jesus the Messiah must be individually believed. There is a call to believe. I wonder if we could just have heads bowed and pause for a minute here as we close and pray. <coughs> Believers, perhaps there's some things that the Lord has put His finger through His Holy Spirit on in your heart. He's causing you to repent of and change and obey the Lord Jesus' sin. And perhaps there's someone here today who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. This isn't personal to them. It's something they might even know of, maybe even have close relatives know of, but. It hasn't been personalized. 
And you would lift your hand today and say, Today is the day I'm calling upon Jesus as my Savior. I'd love to see your hand this morning and know how to pray for you and follow up. Lord Jesus, as we close in prayer this morning, we thank you that you are the saving King. That there's no surprises with you. And your great plan causes us to say with Paul, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding them out. Who's been your advisor? And we thank you that of him and through him and to him and for him are all things to whom we glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, continue to do your saving work. In Jesus' name we pray. Chapter 10, um, verses 6 through 8 have been on my mind all week. Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up again from the dead. Are you trying to ascend to heaven? Are you trying to earn God's grace? Are you trying to be good enough for God to love you? Christ has already come down. Or maybe you're descending into the deep as if Christ didn't rise from the dead. You're living in defeat. You're giving in to temptation over and over again. As if Christ didn't win victory over principalities and powers of darkness through his resurrection. But Christ has risen from the dead. We don't have to live in defeat. We can live in victory over sin. Because Christ has claimed victory over sin. So during this song, I want you to take a few moments in prayer. Ask God what he's trying to show you from this passage, from this message this morning. Colby and I are going to sing, and you can join us as you feel led, but use this time wisely. Use this time to really contemplate and and do business with God.
sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
power of Jesus' name.